As the executive director of Family Matters, Dr. Tim Kimmel is leading a ministry that helps transform and restore families through the power of God's grace. He has authored 13 popular books, speaks around the world, and has produced a wealth of curriculum for churches. Tim has attended and served at Scottsdale Bible since 1976, and he's one of our current elders. As all of our campuses join us live, please welcome Dr. Tim Kimmel. I am so excited to be with you guys. Boy, for the past several weeks, we've had a lot of fun with these great guys that have been here. You know, uh, Kevin Butcher, Carl Clausen, and Brian Loritz. They're, they're long, long-time friends of mine. We've, we've worked together, served together side by side. And I, I just really enjoyed having them. But each one of them wind up about the, the heat. And, and, and I get over it. I mean, I live here. I'm one of you. I am excited that, you know, I don't, I don't sweat as I pass out in the middle of this heat. But, but those guys all had something in common that I don't have. And that is, they all had a boarding pass on them. <laughs> and they could get out of here, and, and, and I don't have that. And you know, it's interesting, I speak all over the country in churches, you know, just about every Sunday somewhere. I can't wait to get up there, and so forth. It, I get nervous as can be when I have to talk with you folks, my, my own church. I, I don't sleep well through the week, and I'm up half the night. I don't know why it is. So, and I guess it's because I have to live with you. You know, you can find me. If I get in your grill spiritually, you can say, I, I'm going to hurt him. And so, but, but I want to have that same freedom that they had to, to, to bring God's word to you that he's laid on my heart. Um, and I want to... Just welcome all those wonderful people watching us at Grace Chapel and, and, and uh, down at the Cactus Campus and across the way at where Darcy and I attend at the venue, and maybe those online. And if you're a visitor here, Scottsdale Bible, this, this church here, it's, it's, we, this is the time we set aside every Sunday in our service um, to focus in on God through his word. Now, now. This isn't an evangelical country club we're running here for people who want to practice comfortable and safe Christianity. Uh, we're not into inspirational pep talks. Uh, and we're not into teaching the Bible for the Bible's sake, just for how much you know. Because the last thing we need is a bunch of biblical pinheads around here, you know, showing us how well their muscles are. You know, because what we're about is the Bible transforming us into the image of Christ. And, and so SBC exists to help people connect to the heart of God, through the word of God, to gain a better health uh, uh, and, and, uh, spiritually and to learn how to apply God's word and all the different nuances of their life. So what I wanna do this morning is I wanna spend some time talking with you about one of the most foundational features of our belief system, and that's God's grace. And more importantly, the active role it should be playing out in our lives if we claim to be followers of Christ. So, with that in mind, get out your devices and, and uh, call up in your app uh, Philippians chapter 2. Or if you have your Bible, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is a, one of several books in the New Testament that were written by the Apostle Paul. And St. Saint, Saint Paul, um, these were mainly letters that he sent to churches. This in particular one in Philippi, a town in, in, in Greece, and he was sending to church there. But the very, uh, something very interesting about this particular book is that this, it, this book is one of the happiest books 
in the Bible. In fact, the theme of it is joy. But what makes that interesting is where he was writing it from, because he was in prison. And this wasn't some club med prison. I mean, this is a nasty place. And yet he was so overwhelmed with the power and presence of the Lord. And that came out as joy as he went to them. You get to chapter two, and then he really cuts to the quick of what God's presence coming out of our life should look like. Look at this. Verse three, do nothing. There's a very restrictive word. It doesn't give us any wiggle room. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Some Bibles say vain conceit, because all conceit is vanity. But in, look at this, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then look at how he builds a reason for that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. Lord, we come here with all kinds of things in our heart. And we're grateful for the ones who could come here this morning. And, and, and they're really feeling great. And, and life is going well for them. And relationships are awesome. And their health is good. But Lord, there's many who come here. And boy, they have some heavy heart stuff working through. Some of us, it's a, it might be a problem at work, a financial issue. Or it's a big-time relational issue. There's people here that are just worried sick about a, a rogue son or daughter that uh, has really gone down some back alleys they're frightened about. Or, or maybe they have a relationship up close to them uh, that they thought was about love, and they're finding out the, they're feeling blades in their back of betrayal. There's some here that um, have a, a gigantic medical thing just overshadowing them. And then... And it's, all of us come with areas of our life we know just are wrong. We have sin that's plaguing us. Lord, no matter where we are, I pray that you will use this time with you, with your word, and, and help us see how you want to set our hearts free and how you want to live through us through the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, here's the thing. I, I said I wanted to spend some time looking at how to turn God's heart of grace into this, the default mode of our closest relationship. But just that statement alone is a mouthful because, see, the average Christian struggles at this. And so what I want to do right out of the blocks, and, and I'm going to go very fast here, uh, and, and you might want to come back and watch this one over again and, and take, just write it down word for word. Uh, and we have resources out there that can dial in this. What is grace? What is grace? It's giving someone something they desperately need but don't necessarily deserve. What does grace look like when it's, when it's coming out of it? it? It's a commitment to kindness. It's a consistent desire to bring the best out of the person that you're called to love. And when we're treating someone graciously, how does it impact them? It makes them feel secure in the love that they're receiving from them. It makes them feel significant about the purpose that they're called to live. It gives them a strong hope about where they are and what the future looks like. 
And, and when, when grace is the way we're dealing with someone, it tends to make their hearts feel freer and more at home around us because, because grace consistently gives the people they love the freedom to be different, the freedom to be vulnerable, the freedom to be candid, the freedom to be imperfect. Where did I get all that from? I, that's exactly how Jesus deals with you and me. Everything I just listed is exactly how he deals with us. And if we're supposed to be mirroring his image, if we are supposed to be in Christ and he's supposed to be coming through us, that's what our relationship should look like. And here's, I want to make sure you also know what God's grace doesn't look like. It doesn't look like keeping score. It doesn't look like nagging or yelling or swearing or shaming or embarrassing someone or putting someone in their place or withholding love from someone that doesn't measure up to our standards. But here's reality. The closer the relationship, the harder it is to show grace. Just the way it is. You can be so gracious to a stranger, but it's tougher when that's your child or your spouse or a real close friend, somebody at work. That's just because, because that's where you have so much more on the line. And so with that in mind, uh, I want to I pick one of those areas, and I want to use that as our, as our focus of how we're going to see what applied grace looks like, and that's marriage. Uh, but you say, oh, darn, why? I wish you'd have put that in the title. Then I could have looked it up online and realized you're talking about marriage, and I could skip church because I'm single, and, and, I, and, and it doesn't apply to me, or I'm divorced, or, or we have a good marriage. Listen, that, that, that way of thinking gets us nowhere. No matter what we're teaching on here, God has something for us. And I guarantee you that what we're going to look at, you're going to see applies across the board in all of our relationships, but we want to focus on this one because this is the one where if any relationship needs grace the most, it's marriage. If any relationship lacks grace the most, it's marriage. That makes sense? So, so let's dial in on that. And if you're young and unmarried, just take notes. If you've been through a, a, a divorce or a marriage that went south, you might want to take stock. But if you're married, you might want to take cover because we're going to get honest about this. Uh, to, to set the stage for this, um, I was during the, uh, the Christmas season, uh, coming into the year I would turn 50, I just got to thinking about something. And it was a real weak moment. I don't know what got into me, but I decided I wanted to run a marathon that year. Now, I should have thought of this earlier because they don't shorten it just because you're getting old. It's still 26.2 miles. But I decided I want to uh, run a marathon. And, and I, thought, uh, I did some research. And if you're going to run one, at least run one in a great venue. Well, what's better than the Big Apple? New York City Marathon. So I, did, I, I downloaded their, their application. I filled it out, dropped it in the mail on January 1st. Now, the, the, the New York City Marathon is the first Sunday in November. I wouldn't find out whether I was one of the ones selected until the end of March or 1st of April. But I knew regardless, I got to start putting some miles on my shoes on January 1st. And I did it. Each week, I kept building up the base and the base and the base. And sure enough, I got selected. And we went there. Darcy and I uh, got to New York City and, 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 uh, a, a, a couple days before. And then the day of, what you do is you take the subway or a taxi or something down to the to the library there in, in downtown Manhattan. They have all these buses waiting for you. And they whisk you down to Staten Island because you're going to run through all five boroughs before you're done. And the staging area is Fort Wadsworth, which is an old uh, fort that goes back to Revolutionary War days, right there at the mouth of the harbor on Staten Island. 
And, and you get there several hours early. It's very festive and fun and music and colorful and all. And so uh, we, we were there. And it, but as I was kind of stretching out in, in the crowd, I noticed there was a girl and a guy over by the uh, red brick old wall of this fort. And uh, she had kind of had a, a bouquet of flowers. She decorated her shoes some. And he had, had on one of those T-shirts like a, a, a tuxedo. And they brought a preacher and a couple of friends and they got married right there. And I saw them, they were exchanging their vows, and I thought, that's incredible, this is awesome. We ought to require all couples to do this. You get married, and for your reception, you gotta run a marathon. <laughs> just to kinda let you know, this is what you just signed up for. <laughs> well, you know, when, when, you, when you apply for a, 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 a marathon, they usually say, you know, how long do you think it's gonna take you to run this thing, and you kind of give them your estimates you're aiming at, and they, that determines your numbering. So I had a big five-digit number on me <laughs> among the 30,000 that were there. All the Kenyans had single-digit numbers. <laughs> but but, but this, this couple was basically uh, in the same numbering block that I was in. They, they, you know, we were within a couple hundred of each other, and so we kind of took off together. But they were much younger than me. They were in their early 20s, so they took off way out ahead of me. But I passed them in Brooklyn. Because he was over there and he was throwing up on the side. And she was rubbing his head and patting his back. And I thought, yeah, get used to that, man. You're going to do that a lot. And then and I kept running. Well, then they passed me again because they're younger. And I didn't see them. But I made my way on through Queens and back into Manhattan, up into the Bronx, and then down into Central Park. Still had a couple miles. But, but about a mile shy of Tavern on the Green, where the finish line was, I saw them again. But this time she was down. He had both of her shoes off. She was crying her eyes out, and she had blisters on both feet. And I felt so sorry for him because they'd gotten so close. But if you're runners, you know, blisters, you're done. And yet, it reminded me how much we're up against when it comes to those kind of relationships, all the stuff that works against us. And with that in mind, here's the first point I want to make. Listen, we need God's grace in our marriage because we marry people with issues. We do. You can't pull off a decent marriage with an accidental commitment. You, love doesn't thrive on cruise control. I mean, think about it. Two people come together. They're commingling their assets and their liabilities, their common beliefs with their differences of opinion, their mutual goals with their personal agendas. And so it's just a recipe for struggle. And Darcy knows all about the need for grace in marriage my wife, because I, 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 I felt on my wedding day I was marrying an angel, but a couple weeks after married to me, I think she thought she married an idiot. Uh, now, in saying that, I wasn't a bad person. I wasn't, you know, I knew how to work hard, and I took responsibility for my actions and all that stuff, but I just had things about me that she just didn't know about until we got married. That I, what in the, like, for instance, I like to go down, I occasionally like to go down marked dead-end roads just to make certain they go nowhere. You know, you got to make sure. <laughs> I'm a ready, shoot, aim type of guy. Married to a ready, aim, 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 aim woman. And I married a girl with expectations that often caught me off guard. Early on in our marriage, I'd gone to bed early. I was asleep. I mean, I was into that 
REM coma type sleep. We like to drop into guys. And then she finally comes in, snuggles up next to me and says, did you lock the front door? <laughs> what? Did you lock the front door? You just turn a little thingy towards the jam. It's not hard. My father always locked the front door. We'll call him up and see if he'll come over and lock up. I'm trying to sleep. I brought, because of my blue collar background, I bought a redneck practicality to solving problems to the marriage that I thought was a real asset. And, but she tended to roll her eyes a lot and shake her head when I was in action. Uh, some of you have heard me tell this story before uh, that have been around the church. Uh, we, we, my mother never taught me to cook. Uh, uh, she was a great cook, and, and Darcy's a great cook, so I never learned. But um, uh, Darcy was going on a trip to uh, see her mother across the country, and we had some little kids, and I don't like anybody dying on my watch. I'm sensitive about certain things. And she had so little confidence in my ability to feed them that she packed their lunches in advance and put them in a freezer and said, just pull one out when you leave for school. It'll be thawed by the time you have to eat it. But dinner time came, and she bought all these pre-made dinners, and I was on. And, and so I read on the little note she left on the refrigerator, on the magnet, and said, uh, get this particular lasagna out of the refrigerator, microwave it, feed it to the kids. Now, I should have read more carefully, because she had put a descriptive word before lasagna, and the reason she'd done that is because our microwave, the big microwave that comes with our oven range, had been recalled a couple weeks earlier. The manufacturer said, like, don't use it. It'll burn your, it'll melt your face off. We're going to fix it. So we had a, 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 a backup one that was half the capacity. The one she had listed would have gone in there. I'd opened up this great big thing because I saw lasagna on it, and, and, but it wouldn't fit. I got the biggest knife in the drawer out, and I'm trying to cut it in half. But it was brick hard. It just wouldn't budge. You know, men love tools of mass destruction. <laughs> we do. I got something in the garage that can solve this. So I went out there, and I saw my skill saw perfect. I put a towel on the, below my workbench, put that thing over like butter. It was perfect. As I did this, it was just after dark, and so the garage door was up. So I'm backlit in the garage. There was a co college student going door to door in our neighborhood selling magazine subscriptions. He was approaching our house just as we, I did this. When the wine and the sauce stopped, they hear this, Sir, sir, may I speak to you? Came walking out, half a lasagna in this hand, skill saw. Yeah, man, what's up? He looked down at my hands and over his shoulder. Did I just see you saw a lasagna in hand? <laughs> yeah, I'm fixing dinner. I mean, that was all the more he wanted to know about the nut job at this address. Later on, Darcy calls to check on the kids before they go to bed. They're on kind of, and then their third born, Shiloh, AKA the informer. She, and I could just feel Darcy's eyes rolling all the way across the country. We have issues. It, 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 but with all of that, listen, we're still ex we were still expected to write a love story with our marriage. Anybody that gets married, that's what you're called to do is write a love story. And, and we need to do this because, it, it, because it, it's very important because of the role marriage plays in God's plan for the human race. I'm going to go through this pretty quickly because, you see, right out of the blocks, God showed his hand on the role of marriage and family. You know, in the, he had created everything, and then his, his crowning achievement, his image bearers were next, the last thing he wanted to make. And so God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion and so forth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Then chapter two of Genesis comes. And, and what you do is he does the creation story again, like from the other side of the street, gives you another perspective on it. And then he summarizes that at the end. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked. They were not ashamed. So God made this wonderful uh, relationship, but, but he, had to con- he had to configure them some way. Well, he had options. He could configure them into a committee or a corporation or, or, or something like that, you know, a, a club. But, but he didn't. He configured them into a marriage that would extend into a family. And it was the family that was his plan for transferring his heart of love and mercy and grace down from one generation to the next. Well, guess who's watching? Satan's watching all this come down. And he says, I see the plan. I'm coming after it. Genesis 3 comes, and here he, he nails, he goes right after Adam and Eve. And down they go in sin. And their sin did so, did so much damage to God's, the image that we were supposed to bear of God, that their firstborn child murdered the nextborn child. That's how bad it got. But listen, God's plan didn't change. He was still planning on the family to be the main way he transferred his his love and mercy down from one generation to the other. With all that in mind, I want to put something up here. The key to having a mutually satisfied marriage, look at this, is contingent on a couple's ability to maintain passionate and empowering heart connection. Heart connection. Not just connected through an address or through a bank account or when the occasions come at at the hip, but but, but heart connected. The, the, The problem is Heart connection doesn't come naturally to us in our fallen state and the issues that we deal with. And, and without meaning to, we can get married with good intentions, but end up, instead of writing a love story, write a roommate story. Or a, I put up with a lot of disappointment story, or at least we didn't get divorced story. And yet God wanted us to write a love story. And, and I think without God's grace, the issues we bring to a marriage can really make it tough to write that love story. The second point I want to make is this, and that we need God's grace in our marriage because we are by nature selfish. Now, I know that that doesn't sound very complimentary. It isn't. But this is a hospital we're running here. For the, not, 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 like I say, not a country club. And we, not, we need to deal with reality. And, and you know, you don't, I didn't realize how selfish I was until I got married. I had no idea, but we're by nature selfish. Now, listen, if you're offended that I, I, I suggested that you might be that, then you've really got it bad. <laughs> Do you know the people that keep their selfishness under control are the people that know full well they, they're, uh, they're capable of that, and they don't want that to rule the day. And, and, and with that in mind, I, I think I, I want to show you something, because when, when you get married, we tend to look at our spouse through some lenses that really play into our selfish nature. Let me show you them. First one is this one, the me lens. The me lens. Now, uh, you all are looking at me. Can, can, can you all see me okay? Yeah, you can see me just fine, can't you? But I'm having a hard time seeing you. You know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at myself. It's mirrored glass, like they have in interrogation rooms at police stations. And this is, this is an attitude towards our spouse where you're basically evaluating everything they're doing by how it, reflects on you, how it impacts you. 
And, and uh, this, is a, this is a person that often uses a, a lot of singular personal pronouns that were supposed to be plural. They talk about my time, my space, my goals, my dreams, my money, my kids, my need for sex, or my lack of it. This can get the best of anybody out there. Then there's this one, the love if lens. And this is tinted glass, so, so I can't see you as clearly. And this is often, this is one, this is a, a love that often keeps a running tally, keeps score. And it, um, many times it's a reaction to this one. And this is, this is one that, that just feels like uh, they have a right to a quid pro quo, that, that I will give you love if you deserve it. If you're, if you're giving it back, but when you don't show through, then I have a right to withhold mine. And, and, and this can, this can uh, uh, hit anybody. So kindness, affection, and understanding is offered on merit. But, but see, that's not how God deals with you and me. A wonderful passage, Psalm 103. I wish you had time to just unpack it. Go home and read that. It's an amazing psalm. But among other things, he's talking about his love for us. And it says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Or repay us according to our iniquities. Because if God was dealing with us as our sins deserves, we'd be dead. We'd be gone. But he doesn't deal with us that way. And then there's this third uh, type of perspective. And that's the pious lens. By the way, it's the prettiest one. It's all stained glass and everything. Isn't it nice? It's also the most sinister. Because this person has a well-worn Bible. A tear-stained prayer list. And a good service record at the church. And yet, many times, it's the person who uses God and the Bible to heavy-hand their spouse into meeting their personal needs. I've seen men take an, a, 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 a twisted view of the Bible and deny their wife the freedom to wear makeup or, or have her hair styled or, wear, or be stylish uh, in the way she dresses. I, I've, I've, seen, I've seen both men and women uh, deny access of the grandparents to the grandkids saying, hey, it says leave your father and mother. And just because they just don't like them, they use the Bible against them. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of ways that this thing shows up in people's lives. Um, sometimes uh, they try and micromanage the, the, the sexual relationship by misusing the scriptures on one another. Now, now here's what's interesting. Um, the Bible makes it clear. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And yet when we misuse the Bible and the scriptures for our personal agenda, and that piety comes in, it's a form of toxic control. It brings the worst out of people. Now, here's, I'm going to, here's to, true confession. When Darshan and I got married, we, we had all three of these lenses with us. And we could flip them around, use whichever one worked the best. But we weren't bad people. If you knew us back then, what a nice couple, what a fun couple. And, and we had a decent highlight reel from those years of our life. But God's grace wasn't playing uh, playing under. And, and by the way, there's degrees of these things. And we were mild versions of these, you know, and, and we could recover easier. But when people are off the chart on these things, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's high control, uh, like a nightmare. And yet some people find themselves into it. And yet if we're followers of Jesus, that shouldn't be part of the, the, the equation, should it? It gets the best of us. The me lens 
The Lovey lands and the Pious lands share something in common. They're all rooted in our selfish pride. But God's grace doesn't operate in prideful people. It can't, because selfishness is the antithesis of his heart. In fact, here's a powerful verse here. Look at this one in James. It says, God opposes the proud, but look at it. He gives grace to the humble. If you want to know how to get grace, right there. That's where we start. But this blocks it all the time, and yet we all have that propensity, don't we? Unless you don't want to admit that, then, then it's got you by the throat. And yet, okay, so we come to our senses. We say, oh, I don't want that to be me. This is ridiculous. I'm so embarrassed about this. And, and so you want to start, you want to do something about it. But here's the next problem we have, is we, when it comes time to try and fix the problem, we still want to do it in our own power, on our own terms. And to, to demonstrate this, I'd like to invite Darcy to come up here and help me. Um, met this girl in high school, so smitten by her. Come on up here, baby. And uh, uh, we've been, uh, took me five years to convince her I was worth the, the risk, uh, but uh, we've been, we'll be married 45 years in August. Um, now, here's the hardest part of the demonstration. Okay, let's say these represent our lives. How about coming over here? These represent our lives. And I say, you know what? I'm so tired of looking at Darcy through that selfish me lens and, and, and robbing her the kind of respect and honor this girl deserves. Well, and I'm not happy with what I've been doing looking at him through that prideful love-if lens. I mean, he didn't sign up for that, and goodness knows God deserves a whole lot better from me. And, you know, I'm a semi-pro at using the Bible and spirituality to try and get my selfish way. <laughs> well, I'm no amateur at that myself, but I want to change. I'm going to, starting right now, by trying even harder to do all the right things. That's the thing. I think if we just work harder at this, we make it. In fact, you know what? I'm going to start reading my Bible every day. I think I'll start to keep a journal about being a better spiritual partner for Tim. And I'm going to join the men's ministry down there at church, have those guys help me hold accountable to, for being such a knucklehead. I think I'll uh, try that compliment your spouse three times a day thingy that we learned about at the women's retreat. You know, and I'm going to bring her flowers even when I haven't done something stupid. <laughs> I'll do my best not to say, is that what you're wearing? When clearly that's what you're wearing. You know, I can, I can do dishes, I can do laundry, I can vacuum. Wow, if he can do all that, maybe I can concede that a monster truck rally could be a date night. After all, we are together. And you know what? I'll take those dumb walk, long walks on the beach with her, even though no man in his right mind would want to do such a thing. I mean, what's the point? I wish we could race somebody or at least time ourselves, see how we did yet. But you know, I know it's important to her, even though I can't stand the thought, but you know, she's whatever. I'll take them because I know she likes them. Wow, I can't wait till that next walk on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good intentions. We were really trying to fix this problem. But it just was a matter of time. We fall short. Now let me ask you a question. What, what was in those balloons? Whose air? They were still filled with us. How about this? You see, God 
says, I'm going to give you a gift. I'm not only going to set you free from the penalty of your sin, but I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He will fill you. And, 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 and this Holy Spirit was the same one that said, let there be light. He was there when that all came down. He's the one that has power that we don't have. And, and, and he loves us. And he wants to love through us and, and, and do the things that we're called to do. Because we continue, I mean, we are such clever Christians in that we, we just refuse to let God do what he's supposed to do in our life. We want him to save us. We love that. We love the fact that we get forgiveness of sins and we get to go to heaven. But when it comes to day-to-day life, uh-uh, uh, let me kind of stay uh, in charge here. But you see, God has a better plan. And, and it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time when our human love falls short. And that's why the reason God's grace doesn't have its rightful place is because we don't invite him to. Thanks, Darcy, honey. You know, you know, most couples start out their marriage with a ton of love. And yet you see these same couples five years, 10 years, 15 years later, and they boy, that love looks a little tired and worn out and boring and bored. Well, it's been beaten up all over the years. It's been tested. And, 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 and then they, they say, well, you know, what do, we, what do we, and by the way, we don't realize how transactional our love is. We tend to love people that love us back, but if they, they start to pull back on that, we start to adjust. It's kind of a quid pro quo arrangement. And, and yet, when they, they come to their senses and they want to rekindle their love, I typically hear they say, well, we're going to go to a marriage conference, uh, and, and, uh, and, and maybe we're going to get some counseling, or we're going to go to a romantic getaway. And I think, well, that's nice, but what makes you think that even though you rekindle your love, it isn't going to be right back where it is right now, five or 10 years from now? Okay. If you don't get anything else, I say, please put this in. The missing ingredient in most marriages isn't love. It's grace. It's grace. And that's why we need to have the grace lens and, and be looking at each other through the clarity that God gives us with each other. And we don't put each other on all these conditions. And, and, and when that happens... Everything changes. See, because the difference between love and grace, I, because I'm born, I, we're made in God's image, we all have the capacity to love, but it's a flawed love. The grace I'm talking about is not human nice. Nice and grace are not synonyms. Grace can be nice, but sometimes grace can really stand in your air hose and get in your face because that's what you need. But the grace I'm talking about only comes from Jesus' presence in our life, coming through us. And with that in mind, the last point I want to make is for grace to hold its rightful place in our marriage, Jesus has to hold the rightful place, his rightful place in our hearts. And maybe if we just realize the extent that God was willing to go to in order to show us how much he loved us and longed to have a relationship with us, it might give us more of an inclination to let us have more of our life than just uh, saving us from our sin, but actually letting, letting him control our life. And, you know, every marriage starts usually with an engagement. Somebody pops the question to the other person. And you know, some people do it in grand fashion with jumbotrons, or they conscript you know, innocent bystanders to try and help them, or, or they do something private you know, just between the two of them. But usually they try to come up with a romantic setting or something that makes it you know, some, something nice. You know, I don't know where all you got uh, one pop the question to the other, but I, you know, one place I think would be a lousy place to ask somebody to marry you is at a public execution. 
There's just something about that setting that just doesn't lend itself. But that's exactly where Jesus went to, to ask for your hand and my hand in, 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 a, in a marriage relationship. He, he couldn't bring diamonds and gold because they had steel spikes they were going to put in his hands and feet. He couldn't get down on one because they were going to hang him up on a cross. He had friends there, but they were at a distance scared to death. The only people up close, the people mocking him. And yet that was the price tag, the dowry price tag for your relationship with him and my relationship with him. He had to pay that. And he was willing to pay that. And because he was, why don't we get out of his way and let him do more than just save us from our sin, but set us free from our sin and take his rightful place in our life. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. And you know, I, I want to revisit Philippians chapter 2 because this shows us the foundational reason why. Look at this. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. Look, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition. Can see. Look at this. In humility. In humility. And did I, I, did I define humility for you? It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's what humility is. And he goes on. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests. We have to look out for our own interests. But also to the interests of others. Then he tells you why. Because he says, I'm not asking you to do anything that Christ hasn't already done for you and me. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Who, look at this. Though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Look at this. But he emptied himself. This is ekenosis, or the kenosis uh, verb, emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity. He couldn't. What he emptied himself is of all the privileges he had as God. He, he, he set those aside, and, and by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in the human form, we celebrate this at Christmas time. Look at this. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on the cross, to the point of death and death on the cross. And that's why he's been exalted. And, and see, he wants to be exalted in our lives. He says that one of the ways that his name stands above all names is when people see him coming through us with grace, when it's obvious we can't do this on our own power. Well, all that said, that, that passage teaches us that grace is outwardly focused. It consistently puts other people's best interests ahead of its own. It's giving someone something they desperately need, but don't necessarily deserve. And, and it proves it by saying that's what Jesus did for us. All a grace-filled marriage is, is treating your spouse the way God treats you. All grace, grace parenting is, is treating your kids the way God treats his kids. And by the way, if you want to know more about it, I'm just giving you a surface level look at this, but if you want to go into depth, we have resources out there for you. Grace-filled marriage really unpacks us in depth. And, and especially that stuff at the beginning I went through, and grace-based grace, uh, parenting are out there. And then our daughter wrote a phenomenal book, Grace-Based Discipline. And, and because this is something that we tend to, we love all the devotional stuff, but when it comes to the nitty-gritty of the Lord, you know, it takes, we got to get down and after him. You see, I think the mistakes we've made as Christians is that we tend to limit God's grace to salvation. We don't let it pull into the sanctifying work. But it's center stage there. He meant for the grace he saved us with to wash over us and define us. 
Or we proceed from salvation with wrong assumptions. Like we owe him and we need to pay him back. And he's saying, what part of gift don't you get? Or, or, we, or we, we think that if we do good things, we'll get more of his love. You can't get more of his love. You have it all. Or, or if we don't do things, we'll lose it. You can't, he's not treating, he's not giving us his love based on how we behave. He's, he's given to us because he is a gracious God. And he wants to overwhelm us so that we can do that with others when he comes through us. And I think the biggest reason why we're reluctant to do is because we want to drive the bus. We know that if we give him the place he wants in our life, the place he deserves in our life, we won't have the right to keep score, hold a grudge, or get even. We won't have the option to nag, shame, yell at our spouse and our kid. We won't have that. But God says, come on, let me do all the, let me do all the changing work in you. And, and, and we're supposed to mirror his image. He wants to do that by letting us not, not only let, let him save us from our sin, but set us free. Now, it's hard to give away something you haven't first received. You may be hearing all this stuff and say, I, I don't know. You, you mean you can know God personally? You, you mean you can get his forgiveness for your sins? That's what the cross was all about. And, and if you're here and you're not sure about you've never made that decision afterwards, there's going to be people up here. Don't hesitate to come up and talk to them. Say, uh, tell me more about this. I want to know. I want to know how I can know Jesus. You say, I couldn't do that, Tim, because you have no idea the sin I've done. I, I have a track record. There's no way God would forgive me. I love to quote Jamie, our pastor, on this. He says, there is, a va- there is vastly more grace in God than sin or shame in us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he wants to set you free. And God wants to give us a new attitude towards our spouse, towards our kids, towards our friends. If you're dating somebody, he wants his grace to lead the way. You know, I, I, I took, uh, I gave Dar, we, it was her birthday, I took her out to dinner one time and I'd ri- I had a little uh, uh, gift for her and a card and I'd written something on a card. I, I thought, it, I heard it on a, somebody else said, I thought it sounded romantic. And I wrote it on her. And then so she opened the card. She looked at it. I could just see by looking at it, whatever I'd written didn't go over well. And she put it back in and started, oh, so wait a minute, what, what did I do? Did I say something wrong? Did I say something wrong? <laughs> and and she, finally she turned around and says, I'd written, you're my reason for living. Happy birthday. She said, I can't be your reason for living. I don't want that job. I, I, I can't do that. I will fail. I will let you down. I know for, for sure. And that puts pressure on me that I just can't handle. And, and what if I died? Then what? She says, there's only one person can be your reason for living. His name's Jesus. And I thought, oh, great. We're going theological. I'm trying to give her a birthday. But here's the thing. She was right. She was right. See, when Jesus occupies center stage in our heart, it keeps us from putting our spouse in a position they can't ever fulfill. And, and, and also sets them free to do the, 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 us to love them the proper way. Because see, okay, you love God. This, see if this sounds right to you. You love God and you want to take your love for God and pour that over your spouse or your kids. Sounds right. It's wrong. Biblically wrong. Listen, if this is all you get out of this, it's not my love for God I want to give to my spouse. It's God's love for me I want to give to my spouse. What's the difference? My love is my love. It's, it's limited. But God's love isn't. But you can't get that unless you're going to do the work. 
it takes to maintain that relationship. You can't do it if you don't spend time in his word. You can't do it if you don't pray. You can't do it if you don't let him love people. It just doesn't happen. You say, well, that's just a lot of work. Yes, love is work. It's always been work, but there's something that's a whole lot harder, and that is if you don't do that work. The human toll on the people around you, your personal price you pay, the, the easier way out, believe it or not, is just following the path to the cross all the way. Well, uh, oh man, they're gonna yell at me, I'm so... Okay, I, I, wanna, I wanna do one, something quick. Our, our, our daughter, Kara, she was our firstborn. She married a, a guy, King asked if he could marry her, he's an awesome guy. And, uh, and then um, at the wedding, she said, Dad, would you do a blessing over me? And I said, sure, because my best man was coming out to tie the knot, and I was excited about that, because I really wanted to be able to watch the wedding, take it all in as a dad. When you have to perform it, you have to just work. And so, so I decided to write her a poem. Now, I'm going to tell you right away, this poem isn't a great poem because, two reasons. It's an iambic pentameter. That's the baby rhythm of a poet, and no decent poet would use that basic rhythm. And the other reason is because I'm alive. All great poets are dead. <laughs> but I was trying to make this point to her in this poem, and here's what I said. A good man, this is from the book Grace Filled Marys. A good man stands beside you, and he longs to trust your heart. He's been loyal to his brother, a fine son from the start. He's everything you prayed for. And he puts my fears at rest, but somewhere past this moment, life will put you to a test. You see, it almost seems too easy in this shrine of vows and rings to think that you will always want to love and do good things. But I've learned life has imposters who can slip in through the seams of a love that gets distracted by the lure of earthly themes. And so, please let these father words sink somewhere deep inside. And pray they hold you vigilant should life toy with your pride. For somewhere in the future, who knows just when or where, these fickle friends will call your bluff and test how much you care. Suppose you find the gifts you've honed and polished through the years become a source of marvel and looked up to by your peers, regardless of the headlines or the stars beside your name, Please keep your arms around this man and love him more than fame. And should your life be blessed with far more goods than you can count, like Midas, with his golden touch, success is silver fount, you may be so inclined to put your heart in money's health. Don't do it, my sweet daughter. Love this man more than wealth. You might just find that through the years your home becomes a place that turns each soul that visits you into a well-known face. A home filled with contagious joy that causes hearts to blend. And all that fun, don't fail to love this man far more than friends. And sometimes in the clutter and the hurry of the day, the worst might get the best of you and make you want to say that you're tired of all the pressures. You're weary of love's test. Just keep your hands clenched tightly in his and love him more than rest. And what if, by divine design, you're called to some great cause? some noble goal or effort that can haunt with fear or pause, and should it all require a peek into the throat of death, just hold this man with all you've got and love him more than breath. Oh, please, dear daughter, love this man. Yet, do not think this odd. Be careful that no matter what, you love him less than God. For in the shadow of the cross, in spite of second place, he'll know, he'll see his heart secure by the peace on your sweet face. The greatest gift you give his wife is loving Christ 
above your life. And so I bid you now to bless. Go love him more and love him less. I crossed the finish line. New York City Marathon. They put a little metal around your neck, wrap you up in a space blanket because the temperature's a lot lower. Hand you lunch. Ice, it was so in need of sugar, and I saw an apple in there, and I thought, you know, I'm going to eat this apple, because Darcy was waiting for me out on Central Park West, but that was like another marathon away, and I sat down on the curb, and I'm eating this thing, and people just kept coming across the finish line, and I'm just sitting there watching, and then I saw them making their way, but he had his, her arm over his, and he was just, they're just hobbling their way in there together, and they finally came across the finish line, they put their medals on them, wrapped them up, gave them their lunch, but then I saw him just like timber over to the left end of the, and I, and I kind of went down there to look at, and they were holding each other like they were asleep, just holding each other so tightly. I thought, man, that, you have no idea what you just showed me. Because see, love is going to be tested, but when we let that love, some bigger love than us, own the high ground, everything's different. That's my word for you today. God bless you. Come on, close it down. Thanks. Thank you.